Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture from the Spectator world. I'm your host, Amber Athey. I'm the Washington editor for The Spectator, and I'm joined by Christy Clark, a reporter for The Daily Caller, who is the host of the new documentary, Damaged, which is all about the transing of America's kids, a very important topic. Actually, The New York Times is currently in somewhat of an internal newsroom revolt over whether or not they should even be covering the side effects of these gender transitions for children. So, Chrissy, you've uh, apparently done what a lot of New York Times staff are too scared to do, which is um, to actually look at the ramifications of the gender transition surgeries and hormone therapy for kids. Yeah. So our documentary really didn't have to, we didn't have much opining to do on the subject. We just took five people who underwent gender transition surgeries in some way, shape, or form, whether it be hormones or actually undergoing the surgery. And we just let them tell their story, which has been wildly suppressed, even by people like the New York Times. I think it might have been ABC or NBC, I believe NBC, that did um, a small little hint talking about this. But this is a subject and a group of people that are widely silenced by mainstream media. Yeah, and also from the trans community, it seems, because you often hear that detransitioners, as they're sometimes referred to, as being almost traitors to the transgender activist community. Was there a sense from the people that you interviewed that they were fearful of what would happen if they started speaking publicly about the damage done to them? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think all five of them, especially we had one detransitioner. His name is Abel Garcia. Really sweet, sweet guy. And he was telling me that even before he detransitioned, he saw the evils of what gender ideology can do to him. While he identified as a trans woman, attempted to go into police work. So he's a security guard now and he he wanted to be in police work and that, that always felt like his life's calling. And so he was working with some California, I want to say like more LA or San Diego based police organization. And he was tr- attempting to be the intermediary between this San Fran or San Diego police department and the trans community. And the trans community basically called him like a total betrayal to the entire trans community merely for suggesting that there should be some sort of relationship between the police and transgender people. Who the heck is going to, you know, keep security over your LGBTQ pride parade, if not for the police? I was just shocked to hear that. And Abel did such a good job of explaining how that was the first time. And then when he decided that maybe he didn't want to be a woman anymore, not that he ever was, but, you know, he when he decided that was no longer the path for him, that he didn't have any all those activists who who told him this is exactly what you should be doing. You should go down the road of transitioning. They were nowhere to be found when he decided he had made the wrong decision. That's fascinating. Uh, his point about the the police, because we often hear mm-hmm. this chorus from the trans community. And, and I don't even really like using the word community, but I don't have a better term yeah. for it because obviously there's diverse people within, you know, 
transgenderism as it were, but they are often talking about this idea that they are somehow targeted by crime at higher rates of other identity groups and that they're being killed en masse by uh, supposed bigots who are who are coming after them. So you would think that they would be clamoring for the type of protection that could be provided from police. Especially police that have actively recruited somebody who is transgender. I mean, Abel didn't just have the name in acronyms or the, you know, the T, the whole transgender, bisexual, whatever he was at the time. You know, he had gone through with a full breast augmentation. He had been taking cross-sex hormones. He had grown out his hair. He shaved off his, his facial features. Like he was full blown down this transgender rabbit hole. And for that to not be enough to show fealty to this ideology, I just don't know when it's enough. Yeah, it sure. Will be is the answer. Exactly. Um, you also interviewed Chloe Cole for this documentary, and she's been pretty vocal um, in the past year or so about the physical side effects of some of the the things that she went through. And mm-hmm. I think directly challenges this idea that hormone therapy or puberty blockers are fully reversible. Can you speak uh, to a little bit of about what the interviews told you about the physical side effects of these treatments? So part of the interview and part of the documentary was also interviewing an individual named Dr. Joshua Safer, and he is the executive director of medical health at of transgender medical health, sorry, at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, which is a very prestigious organization. And he said to us that puberty blockers don't have side effects. And then we go and you talk to someone like Chloe or like Abel or like Zandra was another person we talked to. And the side effects are lingering to this day. It depends. Everybody's story seems to be different. One of the the girls we interviewed, her name is Kat. Kat, her voice will never be the same. Like the the hormones have permanently altered the way that her voice and the range that she can speak and sing in, which is what she loves to do. She's a singer. And to have that permanently altered, it affects her every day and it affects what she wants to do with her career. And it's heartbreaking for her. For Chloe, for instance, I mean, her voice sounds a little deeper than that of an 18-year-old. She had her nipples grafted. And, you know, I, I obviously encourage people to go watch the documentary so that they can say it in their own words. But there are so many lingering side effects. I mean, Sweet Abel was telling me he's he can't go to the bathroom normally because of the, the side effects of cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers. And to say that that had no effect on these people is a lie. I can't imagine the mental health ramifications too, because you're looking at people who are obviously already pretty vulnerable because they are struggling with the concept of their own identity, which in some cases leads them to pursue this path of transitioning as a means of trying to quell that sort of inner turmoil. And now they've awakened, but they also are living permanently with the damages that are done. How are they coping with that? And was that something that they raised to you during your interviews? It is interesting. I think speaking out is cathartic in a way. I think it's cathartic for for everybody. I mean, there's a popular interview going around right now with country music star Kelsey Ballerini. She's talking about her divorce. You know, everything about that. It's very (laughs) cathartic to talk about it. And so I think that is one of the best ways to go about it. But I, I definitely gathered from conversations, and I, I don't want to disclose too much, but conversations off camera saying that it's it's really just the beginning, that it does, it's not just like you 
unhook from the trans ideology and you're back to normal or whatever normal would be back to identifying as you normally were, there's still a lot of underlying reasons why each individual went through with the transition in the first place. And those take years and years and years of thoughtful processing to get through. So for instance, asking them about what their dating lives look like now, that was a question I wanted to ask each one of them because what is it like to get involved in a hetero or homosexual relationship after you know you underwent a gender transition and none of them are really dating right now? Because that's a question that they haven't really answered. So the mental health ramifications of something like this, it's clear that there's no one solution and it takes a long, long time to really understand what it did to you and how you move forward in your life with it. When they looked back at their beginning stages of their transition or or I guess their acknowledgement that they might have identified with one gender more than their biological sex, was there any discussion of where those ideas came from? Like, were there um, people they looked up to who kind of corralled them into progressive gender ideology? Did they discover it on their own? What are the the origins for a young person who's questioning their gender ideology to actually start going down the path of making changes? Mm, yeah, no, it's it's a tough question because everybody that we interviewed was a little different. You know, we did interview Walt Hare. He's about 80 years old and Chloe Cole, who's 18 years old. So they don't have a ton wow. of common in terms of the <laughs> age. But Walt said that he saw an individual who I believe was in the Navy and came out as transgender. And when he saw that and he saw the accolades that this individual was getting and the praise he was receiving for coming out as a woman, even though he was a biological man, Walt, you know, felt some attraction towards that idea. And he had a lot of childhood trauma. And that was kind of his way of coping with it. Uh, with Chloe, the idea is introduced in school, but you have to remember that four of our five people we interviewed all lived in California. Yeah. Walt, Uh-oh. Chloe, Kat, and Abel all lived in California at the time of their transition. So this is an ideology that's readily available to them. It's not like they were in the boonies of Illinois. You know, they were in the thick of it there in California. So the idea was ever present in the society around them, ever present in school districts, et cetera. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's very sad, too. From your perspective, you know, as a reporter going into this and I assume not questioning your gender just based on what I know about you. What was your mindset going in? What were some of the burning questions that you wanted answered? And how did you approach what is obviously a very sensitive subject for these people? Yeah, well, I think one of the biggest things it's really misconstrued is that everybody that we interviewed is conservative. Uh, they're detransitioners that are conservative and that that's why they're doing that. It's wrong, completely wrong. These are individuals who mostly identify as liberal, if not, you know, slightly right of center, but they're not wild, you know, MAGA thumping Republicans. These, And so checking all that bias at the door obviously came first and just asking questions that would just tell their stories, not offend them or not hold myself back from not offending them, but just asking the questions that if you were living in the middle of the country and you had no idea what any of this stuff was, how did you get to this place and what happened to you? And I think one of the biggest problems for us and what anybody would want to know is why did you do this? But also, 
how, how did this happen to you in a medical establishment, right? Because what we have uncovered is that the medical establishment primes these kids for this outcome. They want to make lifelong patients out of children because they see so much money and there is so much money, not just in the surgeries, but in the cross-sex hormones. I mean, Walt, one of our interviewees aptly pointed out that you don't often see, if ever see an individual that just dies of natural causes who identifies as transgender or undergoes all those surgeries. There's always some sort of outside source that ends up killing them or taking their lives. And it's really, really sad, but it's true. Becoming a lifelong medical patient does no good to these people, yet there's an entire medical establishment pushing it on them. So why? And I think the detransitioners explain that story. The doctors we interview explain that story. And that was all we were supposed to do is tell the story, uh, not push bias. And I think the documentary does an incredible job at that. Yeah. I mean, sometimes just asking people to share their story can be more compelling than conservatives or, or any political person using their ideology to help contextualize it. I mean, I think that this particular topic really lends itself to the act of storytelling and allowing these people who have been through it to to just share um, their experience. And you mentioned that you interviewed several doctors for this documentary. Were these all doctors who have participated in gender transitions? And um, I assume they didn't say we're doing this because we can make tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars off of this patient. So what was their explanation? Did they acknowledge that there are any side effects or that there are a lot of people who grow out of gender dysphoria? I mean, I just, I'm curious as to what their mindset and their approach to this is. Yeah. The one doctor that was very for this, I think the biggest thing that the audience was able to take away is that there are no standards for this care. There isn't any genuine standards for what's going on in transgender health. They have an activist organization that runs their standards. It's called WPATH. And again, WPATH has no data. All the data, all the studies that you'll hear activist sites when it comes to transgender health, they're all almost all studies done by an individual named Jack Turbin. And Jack Turbin's studies are funded by the pharmaceutical companies that create puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. So uh, he has an agenda in the organ, yeah, in <laughs> finding the outcomes of some of these studies and they'll be skewed that way. And then activists and mainstream news outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post promote those as adequate studies and they're not adequate studies. And then you have doctors and professionals using these studies to create their guidance on healthcare. And it's wrong. They're lies. It'd be like, I mean, you could think of a million different, you know, anecdotes on the subject. It's wild what these people are doing to kids. And I think, you know, Dr. Safer said it himself that everything is done on a case-by-case basis. So they are providing surgeries to minors. They let us know they are providing double mastectomies to women at 17. That's a minor. So that's what they do. And they let us know on camera. So there's no two ways about it. I'm glad that you were able to get them to admit to that because there was a huge controversy a few months ago where various conservative activists were merely pointing to hospital websites and PowerPoints that were talking about gender transition surgeries for minors and specifically the the double mastectomies. And the response from these doctors and hospitals was, no, 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 you don't believe your lying eyes. We're not doing this. And I, it was 
I mean, just infuriating for anyone who. Oh, they're who, such liars. Right. <laughs> like, and so it's good that you actually were able to get them to admit that on camera. Oh, some of it on camera. You'll have to watch the do- like the whole documentary for mm-hmm. people out there listening because it is it's so interesting. And part of the documentary, the doctor made me turn off the camera every single time I asked him a hard question. It was so frustrating. I was really just trying to ask him about phenomenons when it came to whether or not transgenderism was a social contagion, whether or not he felt bad that there was a growing number of detransitioners and they had no place to get medical help and assistance. What about that? And my he had made me turn the camera off so many times because he didn't want to answer my tough questions. So it was like I could still get him to sit down, but he would only answer the easy questions or the questions where I like, you know, was purposely <laughs> trying to gaslight him a little and like fire him right. up and and boost his ego to get him to tell me things. And it was infuriating that he would turn the force us to turn the cameras off just because he didn't want to answer tough questions. That's crazy. So when you turn the camera off, would he answer the question? He would just inform me that my question was wrongheaded or bigoted or transphobic. So for instance, there's a study out there done by Dr. Lisa Lippman, who is a Brown University professor. Okay. This isn't some moron human being creating (laughs) studies out of nowhere. Um, And she's completely self, like not self-funded, but you know, she's funded by legitimate people who are out there hoping for her to study and find answers, whatever they may be, bias-free. And she uncovered that there is a rise in rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is essentially a social contagion. So just like anorexic girls get around other anorexic girls, they compete with each other to see who can lose the most weight or eat less. And the same thing comes from somewhat of a victim mentality in, oh, my friend identifies as pansexual. Mm. Maybe I'm non-binary. And they kind of- So these are people who were not you know, these the two or three year old who supposedly always love to play dress up and yes. claim that they were a girl. Okay, I see. Yeah, these are 14 year old girls that are all of a sudden just identifying as transgender for a year or two. And so the, the term is called ROGD or rapid onset gender dysphoria. And I just wanted to ask a doctor that performs this what his experience has been like with ROGD. And he asked me to turn off the camera so he could tell me, A, Dr. Lisa Lippman is ruining her life because she's a Brown University professor and she came out with a conclusion that trans doctors don't like. And he was like, I just don't understand why she would she would publish this. I'm like, because it's the truth? Like, just thought? <laughs> I don't know. Like, um, I know, you know maybe you wouldn't do that, but she just wanted to publish the truth or what her findings found. And then basically said that asking about this is is transphobic. And so he wouldn't be answering that question. I was like, all right, well, let's get the cameras back up and rolling. We'll just ask the next question. Wow, that's uh, fascinating. I mean, I don't know why he wouldn't feel comfortable calling it transphobic on camera, but I guess right. I, I don't really understand a lot of what uh, that doctor's doing. In the trailer for the documentary, there was one face that stuck out to me, and that was Dylan Mulvaney, who has become a really prominent transgender activist um, over the past almost exactly a year, actually. That's how long Dylan has identified himself as a girl and shockingly, these major corporations and brands have sponsored him. He's sponsored by Bud Light, by Alta Beauty. He's now doing a live performance about his 365 days as a girl that's sponsored by a bunch of uh, of entertainment companies. And I just, I wanted to get your thoughts on just uh, the societal aspect of this that goes beyond progressivism, right? Because you now have major corporations and and institutions in American society that have really signed on to this. Yeah, it's crazy. And 
Oh my gosh. I did. We did reach out to Dylan Mulvaney for Ooh, an interview okay. for this documentary. Never <laughs> heard back, but that would have been awesome to sit down and understand from what I gather. I think the reason why someone like Dylan Mulvaney is so hard, harmful, like aside from all the joking of how genuinely funny this person is to watch. Like, I mean, he is comical in every yeah. way that he acts in all seriousness. A lot of people that undergo transgender ideology or their, their trans identity, they only last in it for about like somewhere between like four to five years. And so I think what's going to become really hard about this and what's become hard about it for other people who detransition is for it to be so public. There is a, a gut feeling I have that in three or four years, Dylan Mulvaney is going to realize that no matter what he does, no matter what surgeries he does, no matter what he cuts off or keeps or whatever, he will always be a biological man. And one day he's going to have to admit that. And there are going to be hundreds, if not thousands of kids that watched Jill Mulvaney, thought he was an idol worth pursuing and harmed themselves in the name of being more like him. And that is what is so sad about somebody having a platform like this is he's encouraging something that he really doesn't actually know the ramifications or, or consequences of, right? Sure. Um, you can talk about, I don't even know. It's like wearing heels for the first five minutes, but like by the end of the night, do you really want to be wearing those heels? No, they're uncomfortable. You'd rather be in tennis shoes because that's how your foot is normally shaped. And I've said this a million times about this. He doesn't understand that five or 10 years down the road, the impact that he's going to have is going to be so profound that people are going to be out there for his throat. And I'm like, I, in, in order to protect yourself, dude, stop talking. No, it's a great point. And I think it further demonstrates that your responsibility of the medical community in how they respond to people who are having gender dysphoria, because within the span of about 300 days, Dylan Mulvaney was able to undergo a massive facial feminization surgery that required weeks of recovery. And still, I don't think the swelling is fully down. Uh, that's not something you go back from shaving your jaw off and whatever else he had done. And so to me, it's two-sided, right? Because there's the aspect you're talking about where there's a lot of people who are following Dylan that are going to be harmed mm -hmm. irredeemably from this. But there's also the, not positive, but something that uh, conservatives can point to is how rapidly this can happen to someone and how all of yeah. the external forces are incentivizing this kind of behavior and raising the question of how much the treatment to gender dysphoria is is wrapped up in the social acceptance of of being trans yeah i mean we just saw somebody it was a, a i believe she's a muslim woman her real name is rachel but she goes by raquel and uh, you got to ask yourself, why do you want to be a victim? Like, why do you want to identify as a minority when you're white? Why do you want to identify as transgender when you, in actuality, are just gay? You have to ask these questions, but they're not being asked because we have to spare everybody's feelings. That's mm -hmm. not the point in this. Um, being a victim and the victim mentality that's been cultivated in millennials and Gen Z, it's scary. And this is the result of it, unfortunately, is that people will lie about their identity, will lie to themselves, and then provide pretty much irreversible damage to themselves if it brings them the social status that they're looking for. And everybody else goes along with it because they either don't want to be called a bigot or because it's it's just easier to to lie to people right. than and it's so to have them quick. address the hard truth. Right. And it, it happens so quickly. I mean, Chloe's story is so indicative of this. She got on puberty blockers at the age of 12 and 
was on cross-sex hormones a year later. And by the time she was 16 or 17, she had undergone a double mastectomy. I mean, that's all under, all before she's 18 years old. And by the time she was 18, she'd completely detransitioned. So you look at something like that, it happens so quickly. And the medical community just is, why not wait? I mean, what's the rush? Especially when we know that there are people, I, I believe it's 40,000 or 46,000 in a Reddit detransitioners group. If we have that number of people detransitioning, why are we rushing this? Do you find it so fascinating that society is telling us don't rush into marriage you know you don't want to get married too soon but <laughs> right. oh, definitely be sure to take puberty blockers by the time you're age 12 and cut off your boobs what yeah and uh, this is a, a culture that is obsessed with therapy and saying that everyone should have a therapist but for whatever reason therapy is not viewed as an appropriate response to someone who is struggling with their sense of self and their identity the answer to that is apparently medical and surgical interventions. Right. Well, that's actually one of the craziest things. It's why I, I've been going on this like small little campaign to stop canceling Balenciaga for one reason and one reason only. They are funding right now cognitive behavioral therapy training and CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. It is ingenious. It's it's awesome. It pushes back on the ideology of transgenderism, the sense that it asks you why you think the things you think instead of just affirming the things you think. So I'm like, if Balenciaga is funding this, then I I mean, I think what they did was terrible, but also we need more funding in this training because that's not what transgender or gender affirming doctors are doing for kids. If you just push back on them for one minute and said, why do you think that you're transgender? And then you actually got to the deep rooted problems. You could probably help a lot of kids instead of just affirming them. So we need more of that. The problem isn't that kids aren't going to the right amount of therapy. It's just that they're getting crap therapy. Right. They're getting therapy from psychologists who have bought totally into the medical response to gender dysphoria. Well, you heard it here. From your, you heard it here first, folks, the conservative case for Balenciaga. <laughs> she's, the, she's the host of the, the new documentary, Damage, the Transing of America's Kids. You can watch that at The Daily Caller. And uh, we thank you so much for coming on the District Podcast today, Chrissy. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The District. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe to our channel. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. To read more content on similar topics, visit thespectator.com.